Welcome to episode 62 of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a literary agent and a publishing contracts expert. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. So today we're going to be talking about uh, what we had called last week, author life, public versus private. But this is more of a breakdown, I think, about what it means to be a public figure, Mm -hmm. you know, especially in the age of social media. Now, most of my stuff on my end is going to be kind of like post deal related, but as an agent, Kelly, maybe you can sort of tell us what you think are appropriate things to do pre deal, pre representation. Mm. Yeah. Stuff. Yeah. So I don't know. Did I cut you off earlier? <laughs> well, I was going to interrupt you because you left something out of your little um, bio because you're not just an author. You're a New York times bestselling author now. <laughs> <laughs> And I have to, I have to like celebrate you for that on the podcast because Yay! that's amazing. So congratulations! Thank you, thank you. Um, it's it's actually quite surreal because uh, it just like you know obviously you it's a thing like on your bucket list right that you don't really have any control over but you're like mm-hmm. you know one day I would like to be a New York Times bestselling author and I think. I think maybe after book two comes out, I think I had talked about how I on the podcast I do want to sort of talk about the entire publishing journey, starting from, you know, writing to being agented to selling, and I want to be transparent and real with you guys about my numbers. But it's premature right now, and you know, but basically, like all signs were looking good going into release, uh, going into this week, and I was kind of like, I don't want to hope because I don't want to jinx it. Um, but my editor called me at five thirty on Wednesday and she was just like, congrats. And I just knew cause she yeah. wouldn't be calling me at that hour if it hadn't been for any other news, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy and very excited, but probably not as excited as my own mother <laughs> <laughs> who it, she's very cute. And basically though, she's so stoked because she now has something to brag about with like mm-hmm. her petty auntie Asian auntie committee, (laughs) you know, like she, she just, Hey, she's still, I think I love you mom, but she's still a little bit salty over the fact that I got waitlisted at Yale and one of her friend's daughters got into Yale and we had the same GPA and scores and like extracurriculars. So I think my mother has been waiting for like 15 years (laughs) to just be like, to have something to bring back. She's like, I'm going to rub it in your face. I'm sorry. I mean, I love you, Mom. Like I said, Petty Asian Auntie Committee is what I call her group of friends. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> so like I said, nobody's more ecstatic than my own mother. <laughs> anyway, back to the topic at hand. Yes. <laughs> so we've sort of talked about in the past that there is a division between you as a writer and you as an author. And necessarily and simplistically, that really kind of comes down to you as the author are a public figure and you as a writer is a private person. Mm -hmm. And navigating that divide is tricky. And I think the sooner you are able to differentiate between yourself as public figure and yourself as private person and what belongs in each, I wouldn't say category necessarily, but, you know, what what parts you're willing to let be public and part of your brand and what parts of yourself that you want to keep just for yourself and those who know you well. I think the sooner you come to terms with that, even if you don't make decisions on that right away, but the sooner you come to terms with that, I think the easier this whole publishing business will be on you. Yeah. Especially in the day of social media, when authors are so much more accessible than they used to be. 
and not just authors, but celebrities, anybody, anybody has a Twitter account. And so anybody is essentially reachable if they're manning their own social media. So <clears throat> anyway, um, so let's kind of talk about it pre-publication. So you are at the stage where you have just finished your manuscript and you've polished it and revised it. And you feel that this is something that's ready to be queried. Um, so that's you as the writer. So then you as the author at that stage. So Kelly, you on the other side, when you receive these queries and you're looking up the author, what exactly are you looking for? Are you recommending as in terms of be- not behavior? I don't want to police anyone's behavior. but No, no. Um, you know, I do. I have um, tweeted recently, actually. Um, on the query tip hashtag that um, authors should put their links to their social media and their websites in their queries for me. Because if I'm going to request a manuscript, that one of the first things that I always do before I send that request out is I Google search the author and just save me the trouble of having to search you. Just send me links to everything up front and that will save me, you know, a couple seconds. Um, so I had tweeted that. And um, there was some interesting conversation that sprung up around that, um, where I saw some people um, talking about that and whether or not that was a good idea or made authors comfortable or uncomfortable um, for whatever reason. Um, and this question did come up of, well, what am I looking for? Why do I want to look at people's social media? Am I searching for something that's going to turn me off? Um, and it's not that. when I When I search for somebody's social media, I'm not looking for things, um, you know, I'm not looking for a reason to say no. I'm not looking for a reason to not request the manuscript. Um, I'm looking to do, um, you know, some basic fact checking, you know, is this you, did you write this book? Is this your, really your website? Are you pretending to be someone else? Like, obviously I'm not a private eye, but you know, (laughs) some basic, you know, some basic stuff that seems to line up with who you say you are in your query. Um, and that you're the person who wrote this book. Um, and then I just look for, um, you know, to just a general quick, I, I never spend more than a minute or so clicking around, looking at things. Um, I just want to see, you know, do they have social media? Are they engaged? Are they talking to people? What are they talking about? Um, you know, are they retweeting a lot of stuff? Are they tweeting their own stuff? The, the real content of it, um, doesn't matter so much except in that, when I'm requesting a manuscript, that's the point where I begin to make the determination whether or not I can work with the person. And if I'm going to work with a person, um, I like to work with authors for the longevity of your career. I have a vision for who you are and the books you write and um, the way that your career is going to go. And it's not just about the one book that you query me with. I'm really envisioning a partnership that we're going to go forward together for your future. And so part of um, that process does involve your social media presence and does involve, um, you know, what your aspirations for your career are. And so the reason I search authors is just to begin to put that plan together, just to begin to start to think about those kind of things and see if I can envision a career path where we could work together um, in a profitable and sustainable uh, partnership. And so that's the only reason why I do it. Um, You know, it's really just just to begin to get myself thinking about those sorts of things. Um, I think also just to check that the person who's querying is professional. Yes. Yeah, there is that. Um, (laughs) You know, which is, again, you know, why I say you are who you say you are in your query and that, you know, you are the person who wrote it. Um, I have had people query me for books they didn't write. You know, sometimes they say as much. They say, I'm querying you for my friend Joe who wrote a book and he wants me to help him find an agent. It's like, well, that's not really how this works. (laughs) Um, But I've also had it happen where people haven't been upfront about it, you know, and then I've, you know, gone and looked at them and found out that they're running some sort of similar racket where they're like a publicist trying to get people book deals. And I'm like, you know, so they're strange things. So I do kind of do like, you know, a cursory like check, like, is this you? Did you write this book? Are you, you know, a a human being who behaves in a somewhat professional manner? Um, you know, so that matters, but JJ's right. I'm, I'm not, um, out to 
judge anyone's behavior or, you know, the things you like or the way that you tweet or, you know, anything like that. Um, but it's just to get a, a, a little sense of who you are and how that ties into your book and, um, you know, then see where it goes from there. Yeah, I mean, I did the same thing when I was an acquiring editor. If if the author had social media, usually the agent actually provided it along with the pitch mm-hmm. in the manuscript. But I would, you know, and sometimes they would just say the author doesn't have, you know, social media presence, which is also right. fine. Like, yeah. you don't need one. If you choose going forward that you do not want to have a public life, that you want to completely be private, that is more than fine. If you're mm-hmm. not comfortable on social media, if you're not comfortable with the public aspect that is now increasingly expected of, of authors these days, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely okay. Um, and we'll talk about maybe a little bit later about promotion and whether or not social media actually drives sales, which I don't think is true at all, but we can get there later. Um, but it, it's, you know, but I think a lot of people do use social media in the way that it's described as being social. So mm-hmm. if you have one, you know, and you're looking through people's Twitter accounts, it's usually Twitter because Twitter is public unless your tweets are protected. Um, but like, you know, Twitter is public. So you go to someone's Twitter account and you just sort of read to see that, you know, they're not a bot or their their Twitter account isn't only there to like retweet promotions or something. Because yeah. I sometimes see that, like people who... Just the only thing that I saw on their Twitter account was just like retweeting giveaways or retweeting this or, you know, it's not actually their own original thought or content. Um, And that's fine, again, if you do. But then I would sort of maybe if you had that, then I would kind of approach you and just be like, so (laughs) you have this account. It's under your name, but you never talk about anything except like basically trying to win online sweepstakes. Mm-hmm. You know, I maybe would rethink that. And so maybe the definition of professional is how you conduct yourself in public. Because I don't think agents and editors are looking to judge you. You know, I think it's kind of charming when people like talk about, oh, I went out with my friends last night. We, you know, we went out, had a couple drinks or blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, yeah. No one's going to be so draconian as to say, you know, you cannot do these things that is inappropriate, blah, 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 blah. I think. You just want to see that, you know, you can go out and conduct yourself in public the way you do in your actual everyday life, not your your online life. Could conduct yourself in a civil, you know, civil manner and you're not trying to incite violence against anyone. You're not trying you're not going out there to, you know, basically stir up trouble. Of course that that's a phrase that's really loaded, which we'll get to later, but you know, basically that you're able to exist in public <laughs> mm. As, and not be embarrassing to yep. to either your employer or your professional business partners, which would be your agent and your publisher. Mm-hmm. So I know it sounds stressful, but it's just that. Like my advice for anyone at any stage of their career is basically don't ever tweet anything or don't ever put anything online that you wouldn't be comfortable actually saying in public in, in a room because that's what that's what social media is you know there's no way to have a completely private conversation on twitter in particular and like like i said unless your tweets are locked but mm. someone else and even tweets, if they are someone yeah. could screenshot it and yeah so you know things that are truly private don't put it online just, just don't put it online. You know, I think nowadays we should, we, I think we do know better than this, but you know, just, just to reiterate, don't put that online. Like don't ever put anything online that you would, you would not stand by in a room full of people. Like you would say the same thing to a room full of people. I think that's, that's really what the guiding principle of using social media is. And Again, if you're not comfortable in a room full of people and you're not comfortable sharing anything, then don't. Don't have social media. That's fine, too. And you can just let people know up front. You know, like, I'm sure, Kelly, if you receive queries and someone says, I don't have social media mm-hmm. and I'm not, I don't want to use it, that's not something that you would hold against them, right? Absolutely not. Totally fine. 
So yeah, that's kind of the aspiring author stage. Um, so that's before the deal. Now, where I'm going to approach it from is post-deal, because I have noticed that my own social media use has evolved since since I first started using Twitter, and I'm going to use Twitter specifically, again, because it's public, um, <clears throat> and even Facebook I use differently, even my private Facebook I use differently, um, but over, I've always been, I started, I got on Twitter in 2008, I guess. And I basically got on Twitter almost as soon as it opened and I was using Twitter. It like coincided with my start in publishing. So for me, my Twitter use and my publishing, being in publishing has always been somewhat inseparable. Mm-hmm. But even so, like my use of Twitter became different once I became, once I got a deal. And part of it is it becomes more performative It in every way, I think, because now I am conscious. Before, I used to be able to select the people in the room to whom I was speaking for the most part, you know, I, these are mostly my friends or my friends of friends. And so my social circle is, you know, fairly small. So I was able to be more free with what I said, you know, to, to my friends and my friends of friends and people who knew them, I was able to be freer with my opinions and my thoughts. But as that social circle got bigger and began to encompass people I had I did not know at all, and we had no relationship aside from the fact that they had heard of my book, it, I, it started to change what I was willing to share of myself. Mm-hmm. Because again, we're going with this room metaphor. If you're in a, if it, if you're in your, you know, for, if, for example, say you're in a coffee shop and you're having a date with your friends and you're just talking to a group of friends in a coffee shop, you're much more personal about what you're talking about. But if you start to have these conversations in like an in like an audience, like a like a concert hall or a stadium, and people everyone can hear those conversations now, it starts to be a little bit different. So that divide between you as the author, as a public figure, and you as a writer start to become more sharply in focus the more you become aware of being a public figure. Mm-hmm. And Roshni Chakshi used to say that, you know, you're being online as a public figure, as your, quote, brand. It's really showing the highlights real of your personality and the highlights real of your life. And this is when I'm talking about, like, why writers are not so transparent about the ups and downs of publishing. It's hard to be transparent because... You know, again, you're talking to a stadium full of people. You don't want to bear your deepest, darkest secrets. And even when you do, you start to shape the telling of your deepest, darkest secrets for this audience. You just become more aware and you become more performative. Is that necessarily a good or bad thing? I don't know, because Twitter has only been around for about 10 years, so we don't actually really know what the general effects this has kind of in the future. Because back in the day, when we talked about author brand, author brand was very care, or not author brand, but like celebrity brand. It was like very carefully curated, right? It was managed very heavily by the studio and the studio was like, we're going to sell, you know, Rock Hudson this way. We're going to sell Doris Day this way. We're going to sell all these different celebrities and we're going to give them an image and they're going to stick to their image. And it was easier to craft that image because their media was fairly limited. You know, you only had like television and print, you know, like magazines and newspapers and radio. So it was the, the scope was less spontaneous. Um, and that isn't the case these days. So, I, I don't know. I think it's it's something that's difficult to navigate, but I think the earlier you guys are aware of that, the better protected you are about 
just your writing self. But here's here's the other thing, which I have talked about, which I talked about last week, and the, this concept of the imposter syndrome, or even just being trying to crowd out people's voices when I'm trying to work. So my author self is out there, and my author self is receiving feedback. How does my author self deal with that feedback and then funnel it and filter it to my private self, the writer, and either take, discard, or use that feedback in my own writing? And that navigation is very difficult. And it was the, and I've heard from my friends who are multi published now that it gets easier, you know, with each book. The more books are out, it gets easier to do that. But the second book is always the hardest because that abruptness between your public self and your private self is so new. So that's kind of from the author standpoint. Now let's talk about it from the reader standpoint. I have thoughts and opinions about this, but let, let's start with you, Kelly. <laughs> so, well, what, what specifically about readers, the way that readers tweet or the way that readers tweet at authors or what, where do we want to start? I guess it should be the. Uh, I want to sort of talk about the relationship between readers and authors. Mm. What? Yeah. Maybe defining what that relationship is. Is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we have touched on this, I think, a, a little bit in different podcasts here and there, um, you know, and, and what you just said about the availability of public figures now as a result of social media is very different in that authors, since we're talking about authors specifically, are available to their readers in a way that they didn't used to be. Previously, if you really loved an author's book and you you know, didn't happen to be at a place where they were going to be able to give a signing or something that you could see them in person and tell them, you would write a letter Usually you would hand write a letter and you would send it to the publisher of the book who would take that letter on behalf of the author. And then according to whatever that author's policy is, would either forward it on to them to be read or would have a form letter sent out on their behalf or it would just be shredded or, you know, any number of things could have happened to it depending on that author's media policy. But that's what you used to have to do is you would, you know, write a letter on paper and send it to the publisher and then just kind of wait. Um, and then, you know, we had this, um, when the internet kind of became more prominent and people began using it, there were fan sites and people would create, you know, forums and, um, there would be websites dedicated to different properties or different books or series. And so there'd be a group of maybe 60 people or maybe hundreds, you know, for, for fans, there were fandoms, there were huge, huge sites, but a lot of times there would be lots and lots and lots of different sites for the same fandom. Yeah, lots of little <clears throat> angel little fire ones. or yeah, geocities, geocities, and they were like part of a web ring. We're yes, dating ourselves it, here, but yes, it's true <laughs> though. But and you would find your particular site that was, you know, of the the within that fandom, you'd find your niche and your people within them, and you would talk about the books with those people, and talk about the authors, and talk about you know movies if a film version was going to be made, or do your own fan art or things like that. But it was still smaller communities within the larger communities of fandom. And there still was not a lot of direct access. Sometimes um, the webmaster would be able to get in touch with the author and, you know, send some questions and the author would come on and respond. And, you know, there'd be like a little personal interaction in that way, but it was still very controlled. Um, and it was still, you know, that access was controlled and was limited. And now we've evolved to this point where, if an author has a social media platform, if they're on Twitter, if they're on Instagram, if they have a Facebook page, um, fans, readers can just reach out and contact the author at any time um, that they want and can also bear witness to everything that the author puts out on that social media platform. Now, again, this is performative and it is deliberate and you only have access to the things that the person that the author tweets or that the author posts. Um, 
But just because of the fact that the social media account exists and the author is trying to maintain a readership, people do generate content. And so, you know, they're compelled to generate more content to get more interaction from their readers. And and now we've moved into this place where readers just have much more immediate and intimate access to authors than they've ever had before. And we've talked a little bit about the pros and cons of this. So like we mentioned a couple of podcasts ago about how sometimes in the cases of, you know, people like JK Rowling, who interacts a lot with her fans, and that's great, but people will ask questions about the Harry Potter universe and she'll answer them. And sometimes her answers are less than satisfying. And that can be kind of a bummer. Um, because, you know, we talked before about how that's her closing down the world and that really sucks. Um, you know, but she does interact with her fans. Um, you know, there's pros and cons to that interaction. There are good things that come out of that and bad things that come out of that. Um, then there are some authors who don't, you know, who don't respond to fans that fans, you know, can tweet at them, but they don't really, you know, they generate their own content, but they don't have any reader interaction. That's fine too. Um, but I think, what happens from the reader perspective is that this access um, can create weird power dynamics mm -hmm. and they can shift a lot, um, you know, and swing back and forth in favor of the author or the reader. But, you know, an author is just one person and a fan base, when it becomes cohesive and when it becomes, you know, there are people who identify as members of a certain fandom mm -hmm. and that identity, not just of the fictional property, like not just Harry Potter, but like being in the Harry Potter fandom meant something specific at, at that point in time. And mm -hmm. that when readers can begin to identify in this way, all of a sudden that's a large group of people together. Um, and the author still remains just one person and readers can begin to feel entitled. They can feel entitled to the author's attention to the author's time. They can feel entitled to, um, having the story go in the direction they want it to go or have the things that they want to happen happen because they're so emotionally invested and they feel entitled to have certain things play out in the series. Um, they can feel entitled to all kinds of things um, because they have access to this author now and because, um, you know, they just, they, they love this fictional property so much that their love and loyalty to them almost feels transactional and they feel like they're owed something as a result of it. And that, you know, and I've seen all that happen. And so <laughs> I think it's, I, and, and that's not to say that all fandoms are like that. That's not to say that all fans are like that. Not all readers are like that. That's not to say that you shouldn't tweet at the authors that you love if you love their work, you know? I mean, even just tweeting somebody to say, hey, I read this book and, and I loved it, I think probably means the world to so many people. Um, so I'm not telling you to not do that. But I think that... Um, that it's easy for readers to be really dismissive of the power dynamics that can be in play. And, um, yeah, I think, I don't know. Do you have anything to add <laughs> to any of that? There's a lot here. So what social media has done is erode personal boundaries mm -hmm. and not just between a author and their fans or their readers, but, to be honest, the author and their work. Mm. For example, if the internet did not exist, my opinion of Orson Scott Card's work would be different. And they used to say, at least when I was in school and college, you know, the author is dead. In the case of college, most of them were actually dead, so that was true. <laughs> but I think to this day and age, I think 
the author is slowly becoming enmeshed with their product. Yeah. Um, with their body of work. And I don't have any real opinion about whether or not that's good or bad, but it is absolutely true. And, you know, everything, you know, people say your faves are problematic. That's true because your faves are human beings and human beings are problematic. Um, but that erosion of personal boundaries between author and work, and then subsequently between the work and the reader and then the author and the reader creates this strange, as Kelly said, this power dynamic that is both give and take in many ways. Um, because it, 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 the reader starts to make judgments on the writer based on things that the writer has said, opinions that the writer might hold, um, behavior that they might have done, things like that. They have, they have opinions about that and they, and they read those things into the author's work because they have immediate access to it. On the flip side, so that's kind of on the critical end of things. And then on the flip side, on the positive end of things, this erosion of personal boundaries between yourself and the author and the author and their work causes readers sometimes to feel like they know the author, even though what they're acquainted with is the author's personal face, like not personal face, public face. But it that's where the entitlement sort of comes in, where, you know, it's a little bit like, well, you know, we interact on Twitter a lot, so clearly we're friends and we know each other. That is not going to be true. This is, again, the power dynamic issue because the author has a different relationship to the text than you do, and therefore you have a different relationship to the author of the text. So it's this weird, complicated thing. And I don't really have a right or wrong answer or even a way to handle it so much as everybody is, I think, figuring this out together. And, but yeah, that, like, I I do think Orson Scott Card is kind of the prime example. Like the, you know, the more he says stuff, the more I'm kind of like, (laughs) and it, it starts to taint my opinion of work that he puts out and, the stuff that I read before I found out what he was like, I still love and it feels untainted, basically. And and for a lot of my problematic faves where the authors are actually dead, like I know that they're terrible human beings when they were alive and yet I still love their work. You can do that when, or at least I can do that when I know I don't, I, I'm unable to access the author. Mm-hmm. You know, and that doesn't exist for living writers today. You know, if I, I think if I had found out things like, like my childhood favorites, like Lloyd Alexander or Brian Jakes, or, you know, if I found out that they were terrible, terrible human beings, I think I would have a very different relationship to the works that they had put out. And and we're all human. We, we all make those sorts of judgments you know, we're tribal in our own way. We, you know, flocked people who hold similar opinions as, as we do. So if I found somebody held opinions that I found offensive or things like that, now I'm kind of unable to separate that from the work that they produce because it does seep into the work you produce because, and going back to the, the writer as the private self, it does seep into your work. You know, there's no way you can write anything that is completely devoid and separate from your own thoughts and opinions. You just can't. Uh, otherwise, it would be probably really boring <laughs> and bland and have no power. So that's kind of my thought about readers, you know, that it's a, it's a strange, it's a strange new world that we are venturing into. And I don't know if every, anybody really has the right of it really. I think maybe movie stars more than authors have a bit, maybe a slightly better handle on how to handle that. Or, you know, just because they are public, not just their work is public, but their face, you know, they're photographed, Mm -hmm. you know, so the, the way they know how to handle that public private divide, I think is they're probably better equipped with that. They, you know, their PR teams and everything like that, probably better able to guide them through this process. But this is fairly new in publishing. And I would say 
it's only within the past, it's been less than 10 years, really, that this has really been a thing, you know? So I just, you know, when, as you wade into this industry, I think that's something maybe you want to keep in mind. And mostly I, I say that to protect yourself so you're not constantly feeling hurt or blindsided by by how ruthless people can be when they simultaneously want to be your best friend and don't think that you're human. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. I feel like this is probably a good time to maybe segue into discussions about being called out. Yes. So what is a what is a call out? A call out is generally when um a marginalized group of people publicly state uh or publicly dissect tra- harmful tropes in your work basically in public as opposed to reaching out to you privately to say these things bothered me they're doing it publicly to an audience. Um so that's, it's, okay, I'm going to lay it down. If you're called out on something, do not defend yourself. Do not say anything. Do not give in to the urge to be like, I didn't mean blah, 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 blah. It doesn't matter what you meant. What matters is your effect. So I was telling Kelly earlier that in situations like this, in a call out, you're being called out on the effect of your work on a group of people, on a marginalized community. But your most author's response is to try and justify their intent. But the intent doesn't matter. The road to hell is paved with good intentions. Your intent doesn't matter. So basically, in situations like this, you're called out and... For example, just use racism as an example. Say you're called out for racist tropes in your book. The right way to answer is not, I didn't mean to be racist or I am not racist. That's not true. Racism is a system that we all participate into. The way to answer this question or the way to respond to this anytime you're called out is, I am sorry for the pain I've caused. I will try to do better. That is literally it. Because... The harm you do to a marginalized community with your work, even if it's unintentional, it's like this. You are walking with a bunch of people on a narrow road and you accidentally step on someone's foot and break it. That's the racist trope in your book. You didn't mean to break someone's foot. You still broke that foot. So the proper response is, I'm sorry I broke your foot. How do I make it up to you? Not, oh, I didn't see you there. I didn't realize that you were barefoot. I wasn't looking where I was going, and I stepped on your foot. So that's, that is my thought and my feeling about being called out. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I have strong thoughts about this. On the flip side, yeah. I think there's a little bit of glee and or bandwagoning from certain segments of the readership when an author is called out because it comes down to the fact that you are a public figure. So people are likely to jump on, be uh, on call outs because they don't see you as a human being because what they are actually criticizing is your public face. And this is why I stress the importance of having a public face to protect your private self. They're they're not attacking you personally. This is not a smear on your character. They are just criticizing your author persona, your public persona, and your body of work. Again, it's hard to see that, especially when social media does break down barriers between the personal and the private, but that's that's what it is. On the other hand, I think, especially for younger readers who are on social media, I think there is a tendency to treat everyone with a broad brush and be, you know, and there's, it's this sort of expectation that the things that they love or the things that they consume have to be perfect. 
But nothing is perfect. Everything's going to be problematic in some way or another. And I think that that expectation of perfection can cause a lot of friction in a fandom and also between readers and authors. So, yeah, that's kind of my thoughts on on the reader side of things. I'm just, it's a little bit like, you know, you have every right to criticize somebody's body of work, but where the line gets crossed is when you start criticizing the person. You start criticizing their relationships or you make assumptions about uh, whatever it is. I, you know, because sometimes I come across these things in, on the internet and people who dislike an author and that's fine if you dislike an author I, I i publicly stated here that i have issues with orson scott card that is fine but i don't go around telling ever, everyone and telling my friends like well he probably eats dogs or something that's not i that's one unsubstantiated and probably not true and you know so sometimes i see things like that based on somebody's dislike of a problematic body of work, they make assumptions about the author that's like, well, so-and-so I'm sure is, you know, voted a specific way based on what they wrote. Really? Can you really make that assumption unless they've stated unequivocally in public how they voted? You can't make that kind of assumption about an author. So, and it can be vicious in some ways. A lot of big name authors get death threats. I know of two who have received death threats just for doing something that their fan base didn't like. And it wasn't even a personal thing. It was, you know, so I think this is, like I said before, we are in a, a strange new world. And I think being mindful of the humanity of who you're dealing with, both as an author and both as a reader, I think is pretty crucial. So that's kind of really my main thought about the whole call out process. <laughs> what about you, Kelly? No, I mean, I would agree with everything that you said. Um, you know, I think that there is a lot of times, um, something that happens a lot with call outs is that the person being called out feels like a victim when in reality they are being called out because they have victimized other people. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and that, that is, is sometimes easy for a person to lose sight of, um, you know, and, and that I think it's important to try to, to recenter that and, you know, try to remind yourself, okay, why is this call out happening? Who are the people who've actually been harmed here? Um, why are they upset? Um, you know, instead of immediately feeling defensive and feeling like people are out to get you, because that's not what this is. This isn't, you know, the scene in Beauty and the Beast where Gaston rallies the mob to go up and, you know, murder the beast just because like, that's (laughs) not, that's not what, uh, what's happening. These are people that have, um, legitimately experienced harm as a result of your work. And they are pointing out that harm for many reasons. Sometimes it's to warn other people, you know, if you read this book and you identify in this way, there's harmful representation in here and that might cause you pain. Sometimes it is to hold the publishing industry to a higher standard because only by pointing out these kind of errors can we acknowledge them and do better. Um, you know, so there's lots of reasons why people call things out and almost never are people calling things out to hurt your feelings. Nobody is calling something out to make you feel bad. You know, it's not about you. Something that you've done is having larger repercussions out in the world. And it's really important, I think, and hard. It, I, I, as somebody who um, has a very thin skin myself <laughs> and who has a lot of feelings and who is so defensive <laughs> as... <laughs> As a human, like I cannot overstate my defensive impulses and how hard I work um, to curb them unsuccessfully, uh, but try, you know, to be aware that it is my flaw and to focus on it when I can. Um, I, I understand how 
the immediate reaction is just to be like, but I'm not a bad person and I didn't mean to do this and I would never do this. And, you know, I, I, I get that, but you really, I would really encourage you to just stop and take a couple breaths and, and think about what is happening and why it is happening. And, um, you know, to own your responsibility for it because, you know, people aren't calling you out to, to bring you down and ruin your career. And, you know, no. that's not, no, that's and, not a and, thing. And call outs. I can't don't ruin I careers. Don't, I don't, yeah, <laughs> they don't, they honestly don't ruin careers. Okay. Just, just saying they do not, they don't ruin careers. Call outs don't ruin careers. Here's the other thing. If you've been called out on something um, you know, something in your work that has been harmful to a marginalized group of people. And then someone from that marginalized group says, well, I didn't find it harmful. It doesn't negate the harm. So again, I'm going to use racism, for example, for example, say there's a book and it has really offensive Asian tropes in it. And I didn't find it offensive, but another group of another Asian person did. It doesn't mean that it's a matter of opinion, okay? If we're going back to the breaking the foot analogy, it means that you stepped on my foot, but you didn't break it. Therefore, you didn't hurt me. Well, you didn't hurt me all that much. But you stepped on someone else's foot, and you broke it. So, again, you may not have intended to do that in either of our cases, but you still hurt somebody. So, like I said, it's not a matter of opinion anymore. It's still a matter of the effect. It's not a matter of intent. So, even if there are members of a group of, you know, from a marginalized group that do not find your work offensive, don't cherry pick what they have to say to justify what you've written, because then you're actually ignoring the harm that you've done to other people. And these people aren't going to call you out just to make themselves feel better. Like that's not, that's not how it works. They're calling out so that other people can protect themselves. So you know, just be like, well, you know, so-and-so said it was okay. Well, this is why we have multiple sensitivity readers on things. And again, as, as I've always stressed previously, these groups, uh, groups of marginalized, you know, different marginalizations, we're not a monolith, you know, not all people of color are a monolith. And, you know, even within groups like where people of color, the, the way white supremacy affects each of those groups is different and the relationship to the concept of whiteness is different. And so there, this is what we call intersectional, right? You look at the intersections of where these things, you know, cross and affect and change how people perceive the world. And it's complicated and nobody wants to deal with things being complicated, right? Everyone wants a simple black and white, yes or no, right or wrong answer. At, at least maybe that's the Ravenclaw in me, but I'm like, but you can never get at that. There is a set of best practices and that's what we need to focus on is how to mitigate harm. That should really be the first first goal when you're called out is, okay, how do I do no harm or how do I do the less amount, least amount of harm possible? And how do I redress the harm I've caused? That's it. That's In many ways, that is an extremely simple thing, but it's hard for people to conceive of that because, again, of the erosion between the personal and the public, I think that's why it's so hard to navigate. So I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of of two minds about social media in that way, because there is a part of me that's like, I think if I had been writing a book, if I had been writing even 15 years ago, it'd be a totally different experience than it is now. And back then, I think you may have had more artistic freedom, but you may also never grow as a writer because I do think that coming into, into contact with the public makes you learn things and makes you experience new things and opens you up to new points of view. So hopefully your writing gets better going forward, having been exposed to all these new experiences. So I guess there are trade-offs everywhere, but I think that is the state of publishing now because I think I also mentioned this in a previous podcast about how I don't think that there's trend publishing anymore, not for YA, and that we are in the age of the celebrity author. And that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's not necessarily that you are immediately a celebrity once you become an author. It's just that you are a public figure now, and people start to treat you the way they treat actors and other celebrities because you're a public. So 
I don't know. Do you have any thoughts, any things that we want to add, any other discussions or, you know, that kind of a thing? I don't think so. I mean, again, I think the basic things to keep in mind are, um, you know, be a person on social media. Don't be, you know, a robot doing promotion, retweeting stuff and whatever else. Be a person. Um, you know, have a, a public self and a private self, meaning be professional. Don't say things on social media that you aren't willing to say in a public room. Um, you know, and, and be mindful of the ripple effect and repercussions, um, that your words have on others. You know, the whole thing about free speech is, yeah, people can say whatever they want to say. And the only thing that the you know, the amendment protects you from is not going to jail based on what you say. All the other consequences <laughs> are still out there. They still exist and they can still happen to you. And that's why we see people lose their jobs if they say something really horrible on Twitter sometimes. Or, you know, that's why you might get called out if there's something in your book that's not great representation or that's harmful in some way. Um, you know, free speech doesn't doesn't protect you from consequences. It just protects you from jail. So, <laughs> yes. so the, the, thing, the things you say on social media and elsewhere in life, um, do ripple out and do reach people. And, um, you know, so just be mindful of that. We're all going to make mistakes. And when you do make a mistake, because we all will, um, you know, try to really keep the attention centered on the people who were harmed and try to do what you can to repair that damage and learn and do better next time. Um, you know, and, and, and use social media as much or as little as you're comfortable using it. If you aren't a social media person, don't use it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So then why don't we move on to our next segments? Are you working on anything aside from agenting stuff? No. <laughs> nope. Yeah, I'm not doing anything except book two stuff. At least the sort of promotion craze <laughs> pre-release has died down, thankfully. So <clears throat> now I have a little bit more time to write that I just did not have. Basically, in the month leading up to the release of Winter Song, I was just like, I don't have time to do anything right now. I'm writing another blog post, or I'm doing something else, or and you know, I, it's all something that I've done willingly. It's not like I'm like being forced to do it, into doing it, but it is very exhausting. As I'm sure, if you guys have listened to our, our podcast last week, we we just are we are we are fatigue drunk. <laughs> And I think it's really noticeable how tired, at least I was, in the recording of that podcast. So I'm a little bit better rested now, but (laughs) still. Um, So then what are we reading? Um, I am not reading any for fun fiction, nothing personal right now. What about you? I just finished the audiobook of my own book. How was it? I haven't listened I to the audio like yet. I, I think my my reader is pretty great. Her name is Eva Kaminsky. Um, she gets all the German words pronounced correctly, which is what I was look, listening for. Uh, she gets that perfectly. But she, um, it's really, I really, it was the only way I was ever going to, quote, read my book again from start to finish was to listen to it. And it is a different experience listening to someone read my own words back to me. Um and it, it's really interesting because it made me, it was, it put much more sharper relief the parts of my book that I found boring. That <laughs> <clears throat> um, it, it, but I didn't have that experience reading my book when I was going through first pass pages and all that, all that sort of stuff. And it's interesting to me because anything where action is happening or stakes are high. I was, you know, engaging for me to listen to, but anytime that there were feelings involved, like anything romantic related, I was bored out of my mind. Um, <laughs> I think that's really funny to, to, to sort of listen to that again. Um, and it just makes me think that I'm probably not the ideal person to read romance novels or to listen to romance novels because, you know, romance novels are mostly about 
feelings that these characters are having about each other. And I think, I think ultimately that would probably just bore me. So, but yeah, it was, it was enlightening in that way. And I actually, that just, I liked listening to it because I, I think it gives me a better idea of what I need to work on in book two. So, um, so that was what I just finished up. I'm also still, I'm on the last book now of the three Corman strike books. Um, and am I reading anything else? Oh, I um, <laughs> I got a copy of Flame in the Mist by Renee Attier, and I just started it a couple nights ago, and it's great because you know me, I love Renee's work. Um, and I'm trying to think of anything else. I did start Empress of a Thousand Skies last week as well, but it's been so busy at my day job that I haven't really had time to do anything. Aside from good work, and then come home and try and squeeze out whatever right words I can squeeze out, and then pass out. So not not a ton. Um, any off menu recommendations this week? Yes, I have a new political podcast. It's <laughs> like all you're going to get from me, you guys. I'm sorry. I swear. Some someday I'll be recommending other stuff, but for now it's another podcast and it's another political one. Um, and this one is called In the Thick. Um, and it is co-hosted by um, Julio Ricardo Varela and Maria Hinoriosa. Um, and it is their tagline is a political podcast from a POC perspective. Hmm. Um, so it is um, all people of color. They're the two main hosts, and then they have different people on. They have conversations about race, identity, and politics. Um, with current events, they've been doing great work about um, Trump's immigration ban and the ripple effect that that's had on different communities um, and different activists that are responding to that. Um, you know, they're just talking about all the current events that are happening in politics, um, but they're all talking, you know, from their own perspective um, as people of color and all of their guests, um, are all people of color of various races and ethnicities. Um, and they're really bringing a perspective to politics that, um, are, I'm not necessarily getting from some of my other podcasts, which are majority white hosts. And so this is definitely a different and very important perspective. Um, it's really well done. It's really engaging. They're really smart, intelligent people. Um, so if you need more politics to listen to, I would definitely put that one at the top of your list. Yeah, most of my podcasts are, they fall into two categories, which is politics or current events related or comedy because I need the escapism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the politics podcasts that I mostly listen to are the NPR politics podcast and the five thirty eight podcast. Um, Mm -hmm. I do like the NPR politics podcast a lot. I just was, um, it is a little bit, I was talking to Kelly earlier too. It's only been four years, four weeks, not even as we record this four weeks into this new administration, but, so much has happened. It feels like 40 years. Too long. Too long. And and every time I listen to these, like, either current events or um, politics-related podcasts, they have to now put a disclaimer at the beginning of every one, saying, like, this, reco- this was recorded on this day at this time. We are aware that by the time this podcast goes live... Things might have changed and new information might have come out because that's how quickly the news cycle runs these days. So I'm just, it's, I feel so tired already about, again, I'm just like thinking about it just makes me exhausted. So, um, but yeah, I do listen to the NPR politics podcast and the 538 podcast. I like the 538 podcast for multiple reasons because they do look at it from a data perspective. So it's really more science. And I, I like that kind of, the, they, they take the, the data they get and then they interpret the data. So I, I do like that. Um, and the politics podcast is just kind of more re- just straightforward reporting on the events. Um, and the other podcasts that I listen to are that are comedy, comedy related as the worst bestsellers. Um, how did this get made? I'm sure there are more. I've run through all of my podcasts today. Like, I'm out of podcasts to listen to, so <laughs> um, I'm sure. But let's 
see, do I have any other off-menu recommendations? Um, this is really, really small and frivolous, but I am super into face masks right now. Mm-hmm. Um, sheet masks. I did my first ever sheet mask the other day. Oh yeah, I'd, what is it? I'd never done one before. Um, I just, I bought it like, it was like in a end cap aisle display thing at a store I was in, so I just grabbed one. And I got home and I like put it on in the mirror and it wasn't until I put it on that it realized it had a panda face on it. <laughs> and I didn't know that it was going to, there was like a panda on the package, but I thought it was just like the packaging. Um, but no, the sheet mask itself actually had like a panda face. And I thought about, um, like Instagramming it, but then I didn't cause I hadn't showered in like three days cause I'd been sick and I don't have a lot of shame on Instagram, but like I looked pretty bad, <laughs> even with the adorable panda face sheet mask on. But um, it was very bizarre. I'd never done one, and it's like, you know, they're, like, really moist, and you put them over your face, and you leave them there for a while. And then when you're done, you peel it off, and it's still moist, and you, like, I guess you're supposed to, like, tap yeah, in yeah. the remaining stuff. So um, it was a very strange experience, but I ended up really enjoying it, and my skin feels pretty good. Yeah. So, you know, again... People are always like, oh, you know, you're the sort of a stereotypical thing. It's like, oh, Asian women always look really young. And and I always say it's not because that's not necessarily because of good genetics. It's because we just take religiously good care of our skin. Mm-hmm. And that whole tapping it into your face is um, you should also do that with your lotion. Because as you age, you lose elasticity in your skin. So if you're pulling at it by rubbing it in. It creates oh. more wrinkles and sags. So when you put lotion on in the morning or any sort of moisturizer, you just tap it into your face. And it's like sort of the same thing. Like if you're applying makeup to your face with your fingers, it's again, just pat it on and use your ring finger because your ring finger is the most gentle. And usually the skin around your eyes, which is probably where you'd be applying the makeup, is very fragile. So you'd just be using, it's like if you put eye cream on, it's the same thing. These are all tips that I could have a whole separate podcast about beauty tips. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I'm into... You and Ross should do that one. I know, I know. It's actually really, it's my mother who should do it. <laughs> yes, that's true. Because uh, she's always the one who's like, oh, have you tried this product? Have you done this product? Blah, 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 blah. But um, yeah, so the, the sheet mask is my form of self-care. There's also something called dermaplaning. Have you heard of this? What is this? So, <laughs> dermaplaning is essentially taking a razor, um, and I can put a link to the kind of razor it is. Uh, you know, it's a very small handheld razor, and you shave your face with it. You, like, hold it at a 45-degree angle, and you shave your what? face. And it gets rid of kind of all the peach fuzz and baby hair and peach fuzz is not like regular hair or like body hair like if you shave it which comes back coarser it's peach fuzz is totally different so you're just shaving off the peach fuzz and the outer layer of dead skin so your skin is so soft and like super smooth so i've been loving this whole dermaplane thing i'll put a link to the actual razor that most people use and it's um actually mostly sold and I've seen them and I've used them before as eyebrow shapers, quote unquote. Um, and you would be able to like shave the hair, your eyebrow hair essentially to shape your eyebrows. And I actually use them in high school that way when I thought having super thin eyebrows was a good idea, (laughs) Mm. which I don't anymore. But, um, I used to actually, you know, kind of like shape my eyebrows that way, but it's the exact same razor. And so you just kind of hold it at a 45-degree angle against your skin and, you know, kind of lightly just just run it down. My mother is a knitter, and all I can think of is this razor that she gave me for when she knits me handmade sweaters and things like that. Like, if when they yeah, start you, to pill, yeah. there's, like, a special like razor that you, across, like, shave yeah. off all the little things. And that's well, all I can think of It's literally the same, like same... Shaving off your it's face. It's the same concept. You know, dermaplaning is essentially the same concept. <laughs> You're just, like, depilling your face. <laughs> Um, I really want to do one of those foot chemical, like the baby foot. Oh yeah. 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 Because my feet have the worst calluses, no matter what I do, no matter what I do. And it's horrific. And I only get pedicures like twice a year because I'm horrifically embarrassed about it. And every time 
the pedicurist is like, oh God. No, I, I did the same thing where I like, <laughs> they've seen some feet and they still, every time are like, oh no. It's like, I'm always embarrassed too. Cause they like have to bring out like the cheese grater. And like, yep, um, yep. <laughs> the other thing, I don't know if I should, if I should recommend this cause I don't know how easily it's found. But when I was in LA, for lunch, and, and Rosh and I were kind of shopping around Little Tokyo because Rosh wanted some mochi, and um, my mother was talking to me about this mascara that she loved, that it's a Japanese brand, um, and she'd only ever found it in Japan, so I was kind of on the look for this particular mascara. The brand is called Kiss Me, and it has this like anime character or like kind of like manga style character on the front and it's all in Japanese. I found it at this grocery store in Little Tokyo. I don't know if it's easily accessible anywhere else, like online or anything, but I will tell you guys it's legit the mes- best mascara I have ever used. It was six bucks. <laughs> so if I can find it, I will try and put a link to it because oh my gosh, it's amazing. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my last off-menu off recommendation for, for this week. A bunch of beauty, beauty stuff. You can always ask me about beauty tips because I love that kind of a thing. Um, so do we have any questions this week? It doesn't look as though we have any new reviews, so. I don't think so. All right. That's all for this week. Next week we'll be talking about promotions. What works, what doesn't work. Uh, I feel a little bit more equipped to talk about that now that I've gone through it. So that's what you're getting next week. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick on Twitter or Instagram or my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Retribution Rails, forthcoming November 7th. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. 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 Thank you.